Welcome to the Walking on Eggshells with Dr. Tolu podcast. This is the podcast that helps parents and especially those caring for a child with a chronic health condition to balance supporting your child's mental health with maintaining your own emotional health. Hi there, this is Dr. Dayo Alugo from St. John Cap. I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist, and I empower youth mental health by providing education to parents, teachers, and other caregivers. I also um, have um, a course where I, I empower emotional intelligence in youth called the Emotions Ambassador Program, and a podcast called the Walking on Eggshells with Dr. Tolu podcast, where I support parents of children with a chronic mental health condition. So today I have a very special guest with me. Her name is Dr. Carolina Sueldo. We're going to be talking about infertility. And I'm just going to get Dr. Carolina Sueldo to um, introduce herself, where she's based, what she does, and all of that fun stuff. Hi, Dr. Sueldo. Thank you for joining me today. It's really great to have you here. Thank you so much, Dr. Oligo. It's a real honor to be here. And, you know, I think your audience might say infertility, what does that have to do with mental health? But actually, infertility can absolutely impact the children of couples going through it. So I, I'm really glad that you have chosen to cover this topic. Thank you so much for having me here today. Thank you very much. Indeed, you're right. I have so many people that I see who are trying for a second kid or they have a huge gap between the kids and there's mm -hmm. you know, this almost like a power tussle now that this new baby has come along without a different topic altogether. But it's a really, it's a real challenge for a lot of families. Absolutely. So I was going to ask, you know, for just for the layman out there, what, when do you begin to say somebody is suffering from infertility? And then when do you say there's secondary infertility? Oh, beautiful. Okay. So, so first, um, I'll just make the distinction between a general OBGYN and a fertility specialist. So after medical school, all doctors have to go on to do residency training. So they're already doctors, but now they're basically getting training in their particular specialty. And so for OBGYN, that's a four-year residency program, at least here in the U.S., um, for those wanting to do fertility or infertility and reproductive endocrinology, after those four years, it's a three-year fellowship afterwards. So we have to do three more years, apply, be accepted to the position, and then we have to do double board certification. So we have to be board certified in both obstetrics and gynecology, as well as our own subspecialty of infertility. So there is a distinction between the general OBGYN that a woman may see for her pap smear or her annual checkup versus an infertility specialist. Generally speaking, when we define infertility, we typically will use time frame. So if a woman is under the age of 35 and she and her partner have been having unprotected intercourse for a year, then we typically diagnose them with at least a preliminary diagnosis of infertility. But if the woman is over 35, we typically shorten that to six months. Now, there are some exceptions to that definition. Those exceptions may include, for example, if the woman has very irregular cycles, she skips two, three months, she may not be ovulating regularly. Um, another situation may be if there's a known history that could complicate their fertility, such as surgeries or infections that may cause scar tissue. Um, and then the third one, would be, you know, if you're anxious, you've been trying for a while, maybe you don't meet any of these criteria, but you do want to talk to a fertility specialist just to gather information, I still say that that's a good time to talk to somebody. 
Great. So, so infertility, they have never had a child, and the second infertility, they've had a child, and then they're having difficulties having another child. And you've already spoken right. about some of the causes of, of um, you know, infertility. For the women that you see, what kind of um, impact do you see that it has on their families or on their mental health? Yeah, so just like you said, um, we distinguish between primary and secondary infertility, depending on if the woman has been pregnant before. And what we find with secondary infertility in particular, so this is a couple who has one or two children and they're now trying for their next one. And usually the story goes that they had quite an easy time with their first or initial pregnancies and now are, are completely stumped at why it's been more difficult or why they're having issues. And what we know is that secondary infertility is actually much more common than people think. Um, and so it can be quite a frustrating diagnosis. With regards to mental health, we absolutely see increased rates of anxiety and depression um, in both partners, I would say more so in the female um, in with regards to couples going through infertility. And so we know that that anxiety and that depression is going to then expand into other and spill over into other aspects of their life, including their parenting of their other children. Specifically with infertility, we also talk about something called grief trauma. So with that negative pregnancy test or with that period that's coming every month, there is this grief and disappointment that comes, but it's compounding, right? So with each month or with each passing attempt that is unsuccessful, there is added or layered trauma to that patient um, and, and to their disappointment, to their depression, to their anxiety that compounds over time. And, you know, it can take quite a toll, excuse me, can take quite a toll. We've actually seen couples um, really have big issues. I've seen patients of mine who have ended in divorce because of infertility. So we do recognize that it is a massive impact, not only to the patient, but also to their family. Wow. And, I mean, and you're right. If a, if a mother is struggling with her own mental health, obviously her parenting of her child is impaired. And I always say like on the airplane, they say if you, if you need to use a, a mask, you should put on your child's oxygen mask. You put on yours first before your child's oxygen mask. Yes. So if you mother doesn't get help for herself then she's going to be challenged you know with managing her child's emotional health so what are the treatment options available to somebody who is um experiencing secondary infertility for example yeah so i think the the first step really is evaluation you really want to make sure um, that you're ruling out anything and while there may not be any known risk factors we do know that um, some causes of infertility can be silent for example male factor infertility, which accounts for 30% of all cases, an additional 20% in the presence of a female factor. So doing a semen analysis is absolutely important if there's a male partner involved. Many times the men have no symptoms and we may see an impaired semen analysis. So it's definitely very important if there's a male partner involved. As far as the female partner, things like endometriosis may or may not present with symptoms. Things like tubal disease, where the tubes are act the fallopian tubes that transport the egg and sperm, um, may not present with symptoms. And so testing for these things is going to be really important. Generally speaking, for the female partner, we tend to recommend blood work looking at hormone testing. We would tend to recommend a vaginal ultrasound looking at the pelvis, assessing her uterus and her ovaries, and then some sort of imaging study to look at the fallopian tubes. The gold standard traditionally has been the HSG, which is an x-ray dye study 
that's done to check the openness of the fallopian tubes. And then we may or may not recommend genetic testing depending on the individual case. So the first step is really testing. You really wanna be crossing T's and dotting I's. And the majority of cases of secondary infertility are unexplained, which means unexplained infertility in my world is approximately 20% of couples that I see. So one in five couples will have unexplained infertility. Now, it's not actually unexplained, it's simply undiagnosed, right? The testing available today is not finding whatever it is that's going on. However, if that couple has a normal evaluation and they've been trying for a year, if the woman is under 35 or at least six months if she's over 35, then treatment is still recommended. And the treatment is recommended not just to correct a problem because they have a negative workup, but really to try and increase the pregnancy rates above baseline. So what many couples don't know is that beyond a year of trying, we know that pregnancy rates go down. They drop to single digits under 5% per month. So in the setting of even unexplained infertility, the goal of fertility treatment is to bump up that pregnancy rate above that zero to 4%. Now, clearly, if there's an issue with one of the test results, then obviously that may tailor the treatment, right? One way or another. And we may focus on the fallopian tubes or on the sperm or whatnot. But even in the setting of a negative evaluation, treatment is still recommended. Generally speaking, I talk about three arms of treatment. So one is gonna be the actual medical treatment they're doing with the fertility specialist. The other one is going to be lifestyle. And the third one is gonna be supplements. Now for supplements, generally speaking, a prenatal vitamin with folic acid is gonna be recommended by almost universally. And then additional supplements may be recommended tailored to the particular doctor's preference and tailored to the particular diagnosis. As far as lifestyle, I think this is an all-encompassing term. We look at nutrition, sleep, other stressors. So if they do have a child in the home with mental illness, that can absolutely be an added stressor that's impacting. And, and we talk about, you know, we think of stress as sort of these acute major life events, but in modern society, and you'll actually be able to speak to this better than myself, we also know that there is this sort of low level of increased stress that is sort of chronically inflammatory, uh, chronic inflammation to the body, chronic mm -hmm. impact to our mental health. Um, and that can also, we believe, impact fertility. So optimizing that lifestyle component is going to be huge in terms of success for treatment. The other thing to understand about treatment, if you're going to under, be undergoing fertility treatment, there's typically lots of appointments. It's typically quite disruptive to a patient's daily life and their routine. And so if you do have a child with mental health issues that you're already addressing and you're already maybe perhaps doing several different appointments and therapies with, this is going to be an added stressor or an added you know, scheduling issues. So I really wanna make sure patients have a good handle on what they're getting into when we talk about fertility treatment. I don't know if you wanna speak a little bit about um, that chronic stress that I was just mentioning. Absolutely, because really, I think, um, you know, the, the recognition of that chronic, you know, simmering stress that's all yes. that's everybody, but even yeah. compounded for a mother with a child with a chronic health condition that, yeah. you know, is just there, in this society where constantly on a rat race, people may not have help around them. Um, your, 
the partner may not be fully on board, you know, all of that is going on. And then if they're down trying to have another child, they really need to recognize that there's a lot of support they need around themselves to prepare for this fertility treatment. They need to try and, you know, obviously get support for themselves to manage their child that already has challenges, look at their work-life balance, look at nutrition, sleep, all of those things. So I think that information is important for people to have when they begin to think of the journey of getting fertility treatment. Exactly, exactly. So when you break down fertility treatment, it's essentially broken down into three big groups or three big buckets. All of them typically require fertility medication for the female partner. So generally speaking, the female patient should anticipate there will be some sort of medication, fertility medication involved for her. And that fertility medication may be combined with either timed intercourse as the first group, IUI, which stands for intrauterine insemination or artificial insemination as the second group. And then the third would be IVF or in vitro fertilization. And Hollywood has done a great job of bringing IVF to light and making it sort of regular dinner conversation. And for that, I'm grateful. Um, however, I think that most of the public doesn't have a very clear, um, um, a clear understanding on the realistic expectations and on, on what's involved is in an IVF cycle. So really trying to distinguish between timed intercourse, the IUI, and the IVF, and really trying to tailor those treatments according to your particular diagnosis or your particular um, age and your particular situation. Wow. I mean, for, for someone like me, I think, like you said, Hollywood has made IVF so popular. We never even think of the IUI or the other, the other two that you, or the, the other one that you mentioned. So it's really important that people are well-informed and get a lot of information from their healthcare provider. So, um, for a lot of parents that I see who have a child maybe on the autism spectrum or maybe ADHD, they're wondering about, you know, the, ne the next child having the same um, difficulty. And I know that yeah, rules exactly. differ in different countries, but is there ways you can identify those things in vitro? And in the U.S., what are the rules around those kind of situations? That is a great question, and I get that all the time. Um, that we do do genetic testing here in the U.S. It's called PGT or pre-implantation genetic testing. Essentially, the couple undergoes IVF, they create embryos, and then those embryos are tested. Um, there is a lot of um, research now around non-invasive testing where we're actually looking at the media from the dishes where the embryos are grown to try and identify the embryo's DNA from that media, so we're not harming the embryo. But that is not really, it hasn't gone live or, or not ready for prime time, as they say. So, mm -hmm. so today, the, the, if you go today to a clinic for genetic testing, it will involve biopsy or tissue sample of that embryo approximately at day five or day six of development. And typically what happens is the embryo is frozen, and then that sample is sent out for genetic analysis. Now there's two types of testing that can be done. One is what we call screening, and essentially it's just looking at the amount of DNA. Does this embryo have a normal amount of DNA or does this embryo have an abnormal amount of DNA? And so that will be the result given. The second is where we're trying to identify a specific type of genetic mutation. And there is a whole host of mutations where a single specific gene has been identified 
think of the BRCA1 and 2 gene, so BRCA, maybe the public mm -hmm. knows it as that, cystic fibrosis, Huntington's fragile X. These are all targeted mutations that we can actually look for in the embryo to try and select out the embryo so that we can transfer not affected embryos or unaffected embryos. Unfortunately, with diseases like ADHD, ADD, like autism, there has not been a single gene identified as the culprit for the disorder. And because of that, there's no way for us currently, at least, to test for autism or to test for ADHD in those embryos. So that is the current data. It really depends on the disease and the diagnosis and whether or not there's a specific gene that's been identified. Wow, that, that, that's helpful to know because I do know, I mean, families with kids with Huntington's or, you know, like like um, like, um, like 22Q11 deletion syndrome, things like that, that can be quite, um, you know, physically challenging for the children. And I've heard of people wanting to be sure that, uh, that subsequent children may not have those um may not have those changes particularly if they are going through IVF or IUI. So um where can we find you? Where where are you based? Oh on? Dr. Lugo, thank you so much. Yeah. So I am currently practicing in California here in the US. Um but I am licensed in both California and Florida and I am on all the social channels. This was something that I started really more seriously last summer. Um, I really, actually, it was a statistic that I read, something like 40% of Americans get their health information on social media. And so for me, it was, if that's where my patients are, that's where I need to go. So I have an Instagram, I have a Facebook page, and then I have a YouTube channel. They're all the same name, Dr. Carolina Sweldo, so you can find me with that. Um, but really, the goal is education. The Really, the goal is fertility education and trying to bridge the gap. Um, the, the biggest complaint that I get from patients today is just, you know, there's not enough time with the doctor. There's not enough time. There's not enough to cover all the things that we talk about um, at, during an infertility journey. And so really trying to bridge that gap and really trying to provide knowledge to the general public so that when they do go see their infertility specialist, they're, they're better armed with that information and can ask better questions. Absolutely. I mean, education is key, and that's why we, that's why we do what we do. So, yeah. you know, guys, go follow Dr. Sweldo on Instagram, on Facebook, on YouTube. Make sure you share her videos, and, you know, it's important to get this information out there. So before I let you go, do you have any last words of advice for anybody going through infertility, either primary or secondary? I think the biggest thing I can say is, number one, I have two. <laughs> number one, don't wait. I think a lot of times patients are waiting for their doctor to maybe say, hey, it's time to see somebody. Um, or maybe they think, okay, if I just give it another year. I have patients who have been trying three, four, five years. Um, you talk about the gap between siblings. You know, sometimes they've been waiting for five, six years before they see a specialist. And so, number one, don't wait. And number two, self-advocate. So I think a lot of times patients are waiting for the doctor to tell them. And, and really, the more you can inform yourself, the more education you have, it only builds a better relationship with your provider. It only makes for a, a healthier, more productive discussion. And I think empowers you in, in a journey where, you know, infertility can feel very out of control. You feel completely out of control of your body. Um, and so really educating yourself helps to reel in some of those feelings. So number one, don't wait. Number two, self-advocate. 
Fantastic. Thank you for those tips. Thank you so much. So if you're watching this, remember to share this video, like, share, subscribe, listen to the podcast, share with your friends and neighbors, follow me on YouTube, on Instagram, on Facebook. And, uh, you know, there's always important information out there that can make a difference when you go to see your healthcare provider. And um, till we meet again, everybody take care and um, goodbye. Thank you very much, Dr. Sueldo. I really appreciate your taking the time for this conversation. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Looking forward to having you join me on the next episode. Till then, don't forget to share this with your friends and neighbors and to follow me on Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, where I am known as St. John Cap. That is St. John Cap with a double P. See you soon.